And let's keep standing for just a moment and let me have you take your Bibles and turn them, if you would, to Mark's Gospel, to chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13, and then I'll read verse 30 as well this morning. So Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 7, this is the word of God to us. Let us give heed to it this morning. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then down in verse 30, we simply read that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing upon this portion of the service. We pray, Lord, that you by your might would overcome the weaknesses of he who preaches and that you would give to us what your spirit has for us this morning. We pray that we would learn of Christ and learn of his desire for his people. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know what? You can be seated, but while you still have your Bibles out, and well, what, what am I saying? Everyone at Reading Reform Fellowship knows to keep their Bibles out until the prayer at the conclusion of the sermon, right? By the way, I hope no one here is what I would call an early closer. I just made that term up. Uh, that refers to people who, as soon as they hear the word finally or in conclusion in a sermon or in some way sense that the sermon is winding down, that they begin closing their Bibles. And as a pastor, I, I, in the many churches that I've been at or the several churches, uh, you can always hear, as soon as you say finally or one last thing or as we wrap up, you start hearing zip, 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 all of that. But, but I hope no one here does that. Because sometimes the most important part of the sermon, what it's all been moving toward, isn't heard until those last moments of the sermon. And you can miss what the Lord wants you to take away from the message if you're starting to clean up your things while the sermon's still going on. Uh, plus the fact that it's just rude to people around you who are trying to listen if you're gathering up your belongings ready to make a dash for the door. And remember that every part of the worship service, not just the message, Every part uh, is important, from the call to worship to the singing of the doxology. It's all part of corporate worship as we gather together, and we, we need to be fully involved in every moment. That's what God would have us to do. And with all of that said, I want to set up this morning's passage by taking you back to a, an earlier passage in Mark's gospel. So keep your place here in Mark 6, what we just read, and turn back just a page or two to Mark chapter 3. 
And it is there alongside the Sea of Galilee that we read this in verse 13 and down through verse 19. We read that he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And we'll go ahead and stop there. Jesus chose twelve, these twelve, for two purposes, the text says there. According to verse 14, he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Remember when he initially called the first of his disciples that he had said, follow me and I will make you, what? Fishers of men. And Jesus has set apart the twelve from all of the other disciples that he had and he has told them that he will train them and that he will send them. And so far in Mark's gospel, we've been looking at the first of those purposes being worked out, as this passage here in in Mark 3 says, that they might be with him. He chose them that they might be with him. And they have been, almost constantly, since they have followed him. They have watched him. They have asked him questions. They have been taught by him. They have received from Christ as they have up to the point watched him do ministry. They've listened to him teach. They've witnessed him healing the sick and casting out demons. There were certainly aspects of the training that Jesus gave to them that are not recorded for us here in the Gospels. This has all been, up to this point, a time of preparation for the Apostles. It began with his initial sovereign calling of them. And now we're reminded here, back in chapter 6, that he called the twelve. He called the twelve and he began to send them out. So now we read that it is time for them to begin to do ministry. To begin to stretch their wings, as it were, for them to be sent out to do ministry, to be witnesses themselves, to be witnesses to Christ, to be witnesses to the gospel. And so Mark tells us here in verse 7 that he called the twelve and began to send them out. And that word that we have translated there, send them out, that Greek word there is the word apostello, which is the verb form of the word from which we get the word apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out, who is sent out specifically from someone with authority and is sent to represent that one and to do so having an authority delegated to them from the one who sent them. And these are the twelve that are being given that authority and that are being sent out by Christ. And in their calling as apostles, 
as the sent out ones, they model, don't they, the, the one who is the original and the ultimate New Testament apostle. And that's not Peter. That's not even Paul. It's Jesus himself. Jesus is himself the apostle par excellence. He is the apostle. John's gospel is full of reminding us of that fact. In John 6.38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 7.28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. In fact, John's gospel refers to Jesus himself being sent by God 34 times, of which the two I just read are an example. Jesus is sent. He is sent out with the authority of God, his Father who sent him. And likewise, then here, Jesus began to send out the twelve. So first, they were with him, and now they are sent out. A training mission, if you will. A first opportunity. A first, because he will later send out more. He will send out 72 of his disciples with an almost identical mandate is what we will see here. And then, of course, he will eventually leave them to carry on in his absence after his resurrection and after he ascends back into heaven. He will say to them and through them to the church, you are to go and to be my witnesses. And of course, even then, when he leaves them, he will not leave them as orphans, as he explains, but he sends them the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one like him who is so useful and and so critical to the work of the church, to the work of the disciples, that Jesus says to the disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I go, I will send him, that is the Holy Spirit, to you to equip you as I send you out. But this that we have here this morning in Mark chapter 6 is the first sending. They are with him and now they are sent out. By the way, it's the same for us in the church. We are being equipped by Christ. We are being equipped through his word having been called by Christ. And then we are to go out. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. And as the church is given that here, the church in its beginning is given this as these 12 apostles are sent out by Christ. Mark records that, and next he gives some more details about how Christ sends them out. Look at the text there in verse 7. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. That's the first thing that that reaches our ears 
is that he sends them out two by two. Why does he do that? Well, a couple of reasons. The first is that as Jesus sends them out, he is sending them out into areas where, as has just been made clear, you remember the passage just before this, is when Jesus himself comes to his hometown to minister. And how is he received? He was rejected. They said, who is this? This is the carpenter. This is the the hometown guy. And they were offended by him. They did not receive him. They rejected Jesus. And now Jesus is going to send the, the disciples, the apostles here, out into areas where they will face rejection. And not just rejection. We will see in this very passage, and if you noticed as I read that chunk of, of verses at the beginning and then read that verse at the end, we have here again one of Mark's sandwiches where he tells a story at two ends and then in the middle tells a different story. And the story that he tells in the middle that we're going to talk about next week is, is a case of great persecution, the result of going out and proclaiming Christ. Showing that the disciples at some point will face persecution. Eventually they will face death for fulfilling their calling to be fishers of men as witnesses of Christ and as proclaimers of the gospel of grace. So Jesus sends them out not alone but in pairs. Remember Ecclesiastes 4.9 tells us that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. It is good to go out in this way. As it's true in life that it's not good for man to be alone, so it is in situations like this where men are sent out to minister. The two will work better than one. In fact, two will do better most of the time together than two would individually. They will assist one another in judgment in in discernment, in discussions, in questions of situations. Remember, this is one of those times way back in the day where there was no email. You young people can imagine such a time. If Andrew was out and had a difficult question, he couldn't just shoot off a text to Peter to ask him about it. So together, one could gain counsel by having another with him. Proverbs 27, 17, that well-known verse, tells us that iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Another reason that two by two is the way, the best way to be sent. They'd also be able to aid one another in difficulties. One could fill up what the other lacks. That's a principle that continues to be a blessing in the the larger body of Christ when all in a church are contributing their gifts to the work of the church. The things that I don't do well, someone else might do well. And the things that they don't do well, maybe I can do better. Being sent out in pairs, the men could also keep each other encouraged and active, especially as they come up against the, the rejection that they're bound to come up against. It can be discouraging. The ministry can be a discouraging place. But they can encourage one another to keep active. They could 
as the author of Hebrews encourages us to do, to stir up one another to love and good works. If they're not alone out there, if they've got someone with them, they could do that. They could hold one another accountable to keep one another from sin and the temptations of being out away from home. And very importantly, they could mutually give comfort in failures and discouragement. That passage in Ecclesiastes 4 goes on and says that if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And verse 12 of that chapter says that though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. So Jesus sending them out two by two gives them all of those benefits. But there's a second reason that Jesus would send them out two by two. And this goes back to the Old Testament concept of a truth being established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In the Old Testament system, well, Deuteronomy 19.15 says that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. In those days, without the benefit of DNA or cameras all over the place, uh, the, the, the witnesses to a, an event, a situation, a crime, were very important. And so in, in the wisdom that God gave to his people, he said that one person saying something, bringing a charge against someone, is not enough. You need to have corroboration. And so a single witness isn't enough, but this principle of the evidence being established by two or three witnesses is brought into the Old Testament. One speaks, the other bears witness to the truth of what the first one said. And so as these, then the twelve, go out to bear witness to Christ and to the kingdom of God with the, the message of the gospel, they too go two together to witness together to bear witness of of the message of the kingdom of God. That's a very important concept that continues through the the history of the early church. You always see the the disciples in pairs in the book of Acts. We we see Peter and John. Uh, We see Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas together going out. So Jesus sends these disciples out, the twelve, out in pairs, two by two. Mark goes on and says that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. As Jesus has equipped them, now he confers upon them the power and the authority, the authority to do the signs that will be used by God through them to authenticate them as coming as Jesus' own emissaries. It's part of Jesus sending them out with authority. He gives them authority to do the signs that authenticate them as true emissaries of Christ, to proclaim the gospel. Those true miracles that were, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, the signs of a true apostle that were necessary at that time to to show who was true and who was false. Today we don't need that. How do you tell who's a true preacher, a true teacher, or not a true teacher today? 
You lay their teaching up against this, the completed revelation of God. But at this time, these signs were done, true signs, real signs, authenticated those who spoke the message that they spoke. It's important to see here that Jesus himself in his own ministry, remember, in line with what we've been seeing for the past five and a half chapters in Mark's gospel, that he had, we've said this over and over, he demonstrated his authority in all of these areas, over nature, over sickness, over demons, over death. And now he who has that authority in and of himself, essential to himself, now he confers that, he delegates that authority to the 12 apostles. And he sends them out to do this. Now, although Mark mentions here only this one aspect in verse 7, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He only mentions that one aspect, but we'll see in verse 12 that there was more to their commission, more to their charge, that they preached. They bore witness, and they healed the sick, in addition to the casting out of demons. Over in Matthew chapter 10, which is parallel to this, but a a more detailed uh, record of this sending, Jesus gives the teaching mandate to them, gives it priority. In Matthew chapter 10, in verses 7 and 8, as he sends them out, he, proclaim, he says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. In that record, the more complete record, we see that the teaching is not just present, but it has priority. And along with these things... Mark tells us in verse 8 that Jesus gave to the disciples, to the apostles, the twelve, a charge. He charged them, the text says here. A charge is a set of marching orders, a solemn command given to them that they are to carry out. It's a term that we use in the church today. In a similar situation, when we in the church ordain a minister, a pastor, an elder, as part of their being ordained or installed to serve in a particular congregation, we give them, someone gives to them, a charge, a solemn uh, statement of what they are being called to do. It's usually given by a, a seasoned or an experienced pastor. In fact, it's not only to pastors and elders But for those of you who have paid close attention when we've had people come to be a member of the church, that they are given a charge. All of you who have become members, you have been given a charge to continue faithfully in the profession that you've made, the profession of faith in Christ. The parents of of infants who are baptized are given a charge, along with the congregation. We give a charge to the parents and we give a charge to the congregation to both join in raising these children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So charges are seen throughout the church, and here Jesus gives to them a charge. He gives these 12 apostles specific instructions for this particular training mission, this short-term time that they are going out. But the charge is important. Jesus charges them in verse 8, 
He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. What he's saying here is, I want you to travel light. I want you to travel in dependence on God and in dependence on the hospitality of those that you will encounter as you go out. He says, don't take any bread. Don't take any food with you as you go. Uh, No bag, he says. This probably refers to a bag that was used for provisions, a traveler's bag. And no money. So he says, don't bring food. Don't bring anything to carry food in. Don't bring anything to buy food with. And verse 9 says that they can wear sandals. And the implication here appears to be, and we'll see this more in a moment, that one pair of sandals was necessary, but only one pair. They couldn't take extra pair along and no plans and no money to buy any others during their time of way. And he tells them not to put on two tunics. Now, tunic is, was like an undershirt. It was worn under a robe and against the skin. And they would very often, travelers would take two of those along so that if they had to stay out in the cold that they would have something else to put on. Jesus says, don't do that. Finally, he tells them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. And I mentioned that one last because uh, it leads leads us to a little bit of a, a question in the text when we compare it to that parallel passage in Matthew 10 and the other parallel passage in Luke. Because there's some different wording there. But what we understand by looking at those three together carefully, especially in regard to to the staff, Matthew says that they are not to acquire a staff. But the best thing to understand with these staffs is to recall that there's more than one kind of staff that can be referred to by the same word. One is what you would call a, a traveling staff, a walking stick, If you've been hiking or on uneven terrain, you know what that is. Lightweight, simple, needed to help in going over rough terrain. The other is a shepherd's rod, which is more of a weapon. A shepherd would use both. Remember from Psalm 23, the psalmist said, Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. And it's likely that those two things are in mind here. The twelve could take a walking stick with them. It was necessary in getting around. But they were forbidden to take the rod. They were forbidden to take a weapon. As one commentator says, they were uh, forbidden to be packing on this trip. And the the difficulty there in the the text between the different versions is more of a a discussion for uh, technicians then it's needful for us to understand the passage. What Jesus is saying is that they are not to make a bunch of preparations for this journey, but rather they are to rely, as I said, on God. They are to rely on the hospitality of those that they will come in contact with. For the apostles, this was a short-term trip, and Jesus wanted them to just go, to depend on those who receive you and therefore to depend on God to supply it. You're not to worry about it. You're not to be concerned about your physical needs. They're to rely also, Jesus is saying, on the principle 
that a labor is worthy of his wages. Remember, Paul will instruct Timothy of that very thing in 1 Timothy 5. When he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul wrote, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he's saying, Jesus is saying, God, God will take care of this. You will gain what you need by those to whom you go. And while there are some situations today where a pastor has to be involved in what we call a tent-making ministry, which is taken from the Apostle Paul who did that, where he is working in a church and also has a job, that is to be the exception. Generally, a minister of the gospel is to make his living by preaching the gospel and shepherding the sheep of the church. And Jesus is saying here on this first missionary journey that this is true for the twelve. The idea was this, that when they came to a town, they were to, well, Matthew records it, He says specifically, whatever town or village you enter, find one who is worthy in it and stay there. Find one in a town, a village to which you come. Find one who who offers to take you in. Remember, hospitality was a, a big thing in the ancient Near East. Hospitality was expected. And he's saying, go, when you find someone, stay there. They are to wait there or to seek out one who is willing to show hospitality to the two men. And to stay there. With an interesting stipulation, he says, look at verse 10. He says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And what's that all about? Well, as the people in the various cities and the villages were to show hospitality, the apostles were to be gracious in accepting that hospitality and to not insult them if a better offer comes from someone the next day, someone with a bigger house and a nicer place comes and says, well, why don't you leave there and come stay with me? I can make things, you know, things will be nicer here. You're not to insult those who are hosting you by doing that. Once you've been taken in by someone who is willing to provide for your means, whether meagerly or otherwise, he says, remain there for the duration of your stay. Then verse 11 adds another dimension to that. And remember again the passage that we just looked at before this, where Jesus was... um, rejected by those in his hometown. As Jesus just experienced, that not everyone will receive the message of the kingdom that Jesus and his disciples would be preaching. And in reference to that eventuality, Jesus says in verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. If any place, he's saying, is resistant to Notice here, it's primarily the teaching of the apostles, which, as it was with Jesus, is primary. Verse 11 says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, which implies that they're speaking, that they're teaching, he says, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet. 
Now that may seem like a, a fairly strange little ceremony or, or action, but it actually comes from a common practice of the Jews of the day and back into the Old Testament. When the Jews would, would have a need to travel into Gentile lands, Gentile areas, uh, for any reason, they, of course, considered the Gentiles to be pagan, to be outside of the commonwealth of Israel, which they were. And so when they would return from those pagan, what they considered pagan lands, when they would come back to Israel, when they came to the border, they would shake the dust that they had accumulated off of their shoes, off of their feet, with the idea that they would have, been, they would have picked up contamination from the pagan areas, the Gentile areas, and they didn't want to bring that back into Israel. So they would shake the dust off. They would shake the contaminants, as it were, off before they came back into Israel. So here, this practice is a way of demonstrating that rejecting God's message, rejecting God's messengers, leaves one, as it were, in a pagan state and leaves them accountable to God. It's, really, it's a way of saying that if a town rejects them, rejects their message, it's a way of saying your sin of rejection is on your own head now. We've come. We've tried. We've proclaimed. And you have shown that you are not receiving it. Paul practiced this same thing in the book of Acts in chapter 13. I'll read it to you real quickly here. You don't have to turn here, but it's in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Uh, Paul and Barnabas come together, remember the two there, uh, they preach, and they preach about, the, about how the Jews have rejected God, and verse 48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. And then verse 51 says, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. That's the same idea as what Jesus is saying for them to do here if they come into an area that rejects them and rejects their message. It serves as, as the word says here, as a testimony against them for their rejection. If they will not receive you, they are not receiving me, Jesus is saying. And they are not receiving him who sent me. An all the more powerful statement in that, as Matthew records, Jesus is sending the twelve out not to pagan areas, not to Gentile areas, but he is sending them to Jews, to God's own people, in fact, only to the Jews. Jesus said in Matthew 10:5, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he's saying, For the Jews who do not receive this message, the message of the kingdom of God, the message of Christ, the king who has come. Shake off the dust of those places. And so then, with that charge and with that purpose, with the training that they've received from being with Christ, verse 12 says, so they went out. And we see what they did. 
First, as always, and as Jesus always did, they preached. So they went out and proclaimed what? That people should repent. They preached repentance. And how consistent is that? John the Baptist, back in chapter 1, verse 4, came on the scene and he preached repentance. Jesus himself comes on the scene in chapter 1, verse 15 of Mark, and he himself preached repentance. Jesus instructs them to preach repentance. He will instruct the church later, Luke 24, 45, to preach repentance. As they would do, Acts 2, 38 shows that. And as every faithful church does today. Preaching the need for repentance. That was their message, to turn from sin and turn to God. One always includes the other. In order to repent to change direction, to change loyalties. To do that, one must know several things. You must know what they are to repent from. You repent from sin, from every violation of God's law. They need to know why they need to repent. The judgment that is to come. When all will stand before this same Jesus and give account of their lives. They need to know to whom they need to turn as they turn away from sin that they are to turn to God through Jesus to believe on Him for life. And they need to know how to repent. To humble oneself before God. To admit and confess one's sin and to turn from that sin and to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. So true repentance has reference to all of those things. Reference to God, reference to righteousness, reference to sin, reference to judgment, reference to faith, and reference to Christ. Jesus, as I said, began his teaching ministry by saying that very thing. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith always mentioned in the same breath. You cannot do one without the other. And that is the charge to the church today. I mentioned Luke 24, 47. At the end of Luke's gospel, Luke records that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Verse 13 tells us that along with their preaching, their preaching of repentance, that they performed these signs that they had been given authority to do. Verse 13 says that they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Remember that the the purpose of these miracles in the New Testament is always to authenticate those whom God has sent to proclaim the message, to demonstrate by performing true miracles the truthfulness of their message. As they are sent out by Jesus to bear witness to Jesus and to the kingdom of God, they do these things. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning this morning, in structure of this passage, in another example of this interpolation of stories, this sandwiching, we see, some, we see another story put in the middle. And when I say, say, we'll come to that next week. But we drop down to verse 30 very quickly. 
to see that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. We're not told how long they were gone. Everything points to the fact that it was not very long. But beloved, as as Christ sent the twelve out in his name with his authority, let us remember that he has done so now to the church, to his body. He has charged his church to go everywhere, to to every nation, and to make disciples, to preach repentance and faith. Let us be faithful in the church to to hold to the charge that we have been given to proclaim that message. And we should know, even as we, you know, not thinking about the corners of the earth kind of spreading, spreading of the gospel, but the corners of your backyard spreading of the gospel, we should also remember that there will be those who will receive that message and those who will reject it. The first part of this chapter shows that it is not always easy to tell where we will experience that response. Jesus experienced it in his hometown. There will be blessings and there will be persecutions for everyone who proclaims the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that does not lessen the charge to do it. There will be persecution. There will be persecution, Jesus is saying, for those who he is sending out. In fact, as Mark records this, in between verse 13 and verse 30, Mark records a a vivid, a graphic, a shocking example of just how big a price might be demanded of those who belong to Christ and who bear witness to Christ. And we're going to look at that when we return to Mark's gospel in a couple weeks. But for us now, as we consider these things, see if I hear any zippers. Let us be willing to pay what price is expected of us. Knowing that God is always with us. Knowing that as he has sent us out, he does not send us out alone. He has given us the most wonderful of comfort givers. He has given to us his Holy Spirit who is with us always. And so when we proclaim God's word to people, we are never alone. Let us be willing to pay what price is expected of us. Let us pray for those in the church who face real serious persecution as they spread God's glorious word. And let us remember that Christ is building and he will build his glorious church through that proclamation of the message of the gospel of peace. And to that, let us say, amen. Our Father, we thank you for this instruction. We thank you for the New Testament that shows us that in in a way similar to as these 12 were sent out, that we as the church are given a great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations, 
to baptize and to, to call them to remember, to obey everything that Christ has taught us. We pray, Lord, that you would be with, with those in our world today, in our church today, who go, who are sent into hostile areas at times, hard areas, hard times, hard places, in order to share the message of the gospel of grace. Would you uphold them? Would you give them everything that they have need of? Would you help us, Lord, to remember them, to pray for them, and help us to know that all is Christ, that he is the, the, the goal, he is the message, he is the Savior, he is the one that we offer, he is the one that we proclaim, he is the one who saves, he is the only one who saves, he is the only mediator between God and man. And we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful as you called us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.